Well, I can go home now. <laughs> um, thank you, Peter. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Peter, for an, an incredibly generous uh, introduction. And um, in many respects, what I have to say will supplement much of what you have just said. <laughs> and you have opened it up uh, to a larger canvas than I will be able to um, address, which I'm, I'm, I'm very glad about. Um, linking what I will now say in a much more limited way to what's going on in drama, in contemporary Irish drama, the references to Tom Murphy, that wonderful um, citation about the nine generations that we have to work through and we're not sure whether we, we're commenting on it or we're victims of it. And then of course the work of Brian Friel, the work of Frank McGuinness, Marina, uh, Mary Raftery, Marina Carr and, and so many others who have worked on this very question of memory and trauma, and turning uh, flesh, wounded flesh, into fiction. So, what I'm going to do in the next 45 minutes or so, um, so as to hopefully leave at least half an hour for question and answer, is to take three uh, narratives. Homer's uh, uh, Ulysses, the Odyssey, um, Shakespeare's Hamlet, so there I am talking about theatre, and uh, Joyce's Ulysses, and to suggest, as Peter has said, that uh, here we find three examples of transgenerational tra trauma. Each begins with a wound and attempts to transform it or transfigure it into a scar that can be lived with, writing as a scarring of wounds. Wounds, wounds being basically incurable, timeless, as Freud said, um, and unsayable ineffable, unthinkable, unimaginable. That's what wounds are. Trauma is Greek for wound. And then scars are the attempt to somehow register that uh, in the body as felt or as written in a body of writing. So I'll start with Joyce and then the origin of, of uh, Ulysses and then work back through Hamlet and uh, Homer before returning finally to Joyce and opening it up for discussion. My water. There we are. So James Joyce, in a letter to his brother Stanislas on November 13, 1906, announces that he's just started what he calls a short story. It's going to be called Ulysses. He came up with the idea he explains to his brother because of a memory triggered by a recent mugging in a street in Rome. He'd just been fired from his job at the bank and drunk all his severance pay, which should have paid the rent and helped provide for his one-year-old son, Giorgio. But on his way home, Joyce was robbed and left lying in the gutter, destitute, despondent, and bleeding. In fact, it, had, it took place just outside the Abbey Theatre. And it was that very moment Sorry. It was at that very moment that he suddenly remembered something that had occurred just outside the Abbey Theatre. That is, being assaulted several years previously in Dublin, June 22, 1904, and rescued from the gutter by a man called Hunter. I quote, a cuckolded Jew who dusted him down and took him home for a cup of cocoa. In true Samaritan fashion, as he added, this repetition of woundings triggered a lost memory where an immigrant Jew came to the rescue of a wounded Dubliner and planted a seed of caritas in his imagination. Now, several weeks after the Rome mugging, Joyce and Nora were given tickets to an opera whose librettist was called Blum, B-L-U-M. This second moment of happenstance after his humiliating fall in a Roman side street furnished the name of his pater paternal protagonist, Leopold Blum. Thus was born the longest short story ever told, Ulysses, the tale of a father and a son traversing wounds on the way to healing. So my subject this evening is the writing cure, and my questions are the following. How might literature, or theatre perhaps in particular, help us work through trauma? How far can narrative catharsis go, and what are its limits? Catharsis being this healing, function that Aristotle talks about in the Poetics, 
the function of drama is catharsis, purgation of our passions of pity and fear by distilled pity and fear. We'll come back to it if we have time. And finally, how might narrative healing differ in the case of little trauma, the existential wounds of birth, loss, and death, which we all experience, and big trauma, war, torture, catastrophe? So my chosen example, as I mentioned, is Joyce's Ulysses, itself a story which rewrites two other stories, Shakespeare's Hamlet and Homer's Odyssey. All three are stories of fathers and sons, stories of transgenerational trauma, which I'm suggesting are transmitted and somehow transfigured in the writing of the stories themselves. In the opening of Joyce's Ulysses, we're told by Heinz that it's all about the father and the son idea. I quote, the son striving to be atoned with the father. And it doesn't take long for us to realize that the son is Stephen Telemachus and the father is Bloom Ulysses. Their paths cross in the middle of the book as Stephen exits and Bloom enters the National Library here in Dublin. It's a pivotal scene in which Stephen expounds his complex but central theory of the father-son idea in Hamlet. Stephen's thesis is that Shakespeare wrote Hamlet the year his son Hamlet died at the age of 11 and his own father, John Shakespeare, was dying. The play, therefore, is about the transmission of mortal trauma between fathers and sons. In short, according to Stephen, Shakespeare wrote the book of himself in order to avoid the madness of melancholy, in order to properly mourn, to use Freud's distinction, his father and his son in a way that he was unable to do in life. The play itself, then, serves as a symbolic working through of an otherwise irresolvable crisis in which a father, King Hamlet, commands his son, Prince Hamlet, to do something impossible. That is to remember what cannot be remembered, to tell something that cannot be told, a double injunction, an unbearable burden, an impossible story, the double bind of trauma. To speak is impossible, not to speak is impossible. As Dari Laub has said about Holocaust trauma in his book Trauma, Explorations in Memory, but also as Edmund Burke wrote about the famine. It's something we have to speak about, but it's something which commands silence. The words of the ghost, Hamlet to his son Hamlet, remember me, remember me, but that I am forbid to tell the stories of my prison house, I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul. In other words, the ghost's unspeakable secrets for which he's condemned the latency of purgatory, what he calls those sulfurous and tormenting flames, these very things are precisely what remain secret. The secret crimes committed in his days of nature, his days of youth, are, King Hamlet tells us, forbidden tales, in short, the things to be remembered by young Hamlet cannot be told in the first place. So we're concerned here, I suggest, with traumas, unspeakable things which we do not possess but which possess us, like spectres. For traumas, as Cathy Carruth writes, describe, quote, overwhelming experiences of sudden or catastrophic events in which the response to the event occurs in the often delayed and uncontrolled repetitive occurrence of hallucinations and other intrusive phenomena." End of quote. I think Hamlet perfectly qualifies. Cathy Carruth is one of the founders of trauma studies in the United States with Dari Laub. Now, if this reading of Ulysses sounds psychoanalytic, it's because it is. Joyce himself admitted to being deeply interested in Jung and Freud when he was, as he put it in Friedingen's Wake, young and easily Freudened. And the story is well known of him bringing his daughter Lucia to visit Jung in Zurich, only to be told by Jung that he would be as, incur in, as incurably psychotic as his daughter if he had not penned Ulysses. Writing his book of transgenerational trauma, Ulysses and Telemachus, King and Prince Hamlet, Stephen and Bloom, was, it seemed, the writing cure for Joyce's own trauma, the book of himself, as Stephen says. And Joyce concedes the creative liaison between literature and life when he confesses it's a brave man who would invent something that never happened. Not exactly what structuralist or formalist orthodoxy would claim when it's all about the text and has nothing to do with the author of the text, the content of the text, the reference of the text to a world of action and suffering, or indeed the reader, the receiver of the text. 
What happened to Ulysses happened to Joyce. He was the manic magpie who, by his own admission, gleaned every word of his story from the stories of history, personal or collective. As he says, it's a book of stolen telling. Storytelling is stolen telling. His fiction is haunted by what he called the nightmares of history, the mute mothers of memory that cry out to be heard, spoken, written. Phantasmal hauntings torment the young Stephen with the agonbite of inwit, guilt, the repetition of the ghost, the mother coming back, the revenant that comes back. They revisit him obsessively, guiltily, ineluctably. Both Hamlet and Ulysses relate such ghostings of narrative memory. As for Freud, no such meeting took place. But I sometimes imagine Joyce reading Freud's seminal theory of trauma in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, published in 1920, as Joyce, voracious reader, was completing Ulysses in 1922. And wondering, as he read this book in this imaginary scenario, when he came to the famous Fort d'Ars scene, if it did not confirm his own theory of catharsis as enunciated by Stephen in the portrait. Recall how Freud witnessed his grandson, Ernst's first spoken words, gone back again, Fort da, while playing with a wooden cotton reel, which he made vanish, this is the little Ernst, his grandson, under his curtained cot, and then reappear again in imitation of his mother's coming and going from the house a cause of unbearable separation anxiety for the young child. In Freud's famous account of Ernst's first two syllables, fought down, invented to compensate for the little trauma of his parents' absence, mother away, father at war, this was 1915, might not Joyce have recognized echoes of his own fictional ploy to compensate for intolerable loss? In other words, might not both Freud and Joyce have witnessed the magical power of words to work through Durchabeitung, as Freud puts it, to work through wounds, albeit at very different levels. Working through as writing through. And more precisely, when Freud wrote of his grandson's loss of his mother, was he not also writing about his own loss of his daughter? The same person, Sophie Freud. For Sophie was significantly Freud's favorite daughter who died tragically in January 1920, several months before Freud, devastated, absolutely devastated by the loss, wrote the fourth da scene. And the scene, incidentally, is inserted in the book's narrative quite abruptly after Freud's initial outline of a series of examples of World War I trauma. And this interpolation of a little trauma, his grandson's separation anxiety, into Freud's uh, seminal account of big trauma, unspeakable violence at war, opens up, I think, the whole conversation about relations between ordinary and extraordinary trauma. How do you understand a trauma victim, a Holocaust survivor, for example, if you haven't been uh, in the Holocaust? Some people, uh, including Claude Landsman, would say you can't. Adorno, after Auschwitz, who can write poetry, who can tell stories, who can imagine what happened? Nobody. To try to do so, to try to create narratives or catharsis or any kind of healing is an abomination. That was Landsman's rebuke to um, uh, Schindler's List, Spielberg's film. We can come back to that later. But it seems to me very interesting that Freud interpolated quite out of the blue, just after his daughter's death, um, this description of a little child playing with a spool of cotton and in so doing, creating a drama. I mean, if Ulysses was the shortest story ever told, this is even shorter, two words, forta. And in that reenactment of a drama, the child repeats the separation and then the coming back of the mother. There's a, there's a performance uh, healing in this sense. And so by interpolating that, he's also interpolating his own trauma. Freud was not at war, but he's now able to listen to trauma victims because not only has he got a good imagination, a good empathic imagination, as Peter mentioned earlier, but also because he knows he's lost his daughter. And so he realizes that everybody in a way can listen to the trauma, the wounds of others, because we are all at a certain level traumatized. Birth and death are traumatic experiences. We'll come back to that. A lot of contemporary trauma um, discussion, particularly in the continent, uh, centers around this phrase, trauma speaks to trauma. 
If you don't speak from your wound, you can't actually listen to the other person. So if you haven't been the subject of rape or massacre or torture, how can you hear or even begin to heal others? My suggestion here is that the mirror play of Sophie Freud's disappearance enacted between her father, Freud, and her son, Ernst, is a microdrama of transgenerational trauma with a small t. It signals a crossing of identifications where Freud is at once Sophie's father and son, writing the book of himself, as Joyce puts it, so as to mourn a departed loved one, a lost object, Freud's language, namely Sophie. His grandson and he himself are mourning the same person. My corollary suggestion is that Joyce may have found writerly resonances in Freud's therapeutic narrative of Forta, the longest short story ever told, echoing the shortest. This hypothesis is, of course, pure fantasy on my behalf, but Joyce, as you all know, was a voracious reader, and he does have his Finnegan's Wake narrator boast, I can lose myself any time I want. And incidentally, in his uh, poem, um, The Holy Office, he declares himself as a healer of, of catharsis. Myself unto myself to give this name catharsis purgative. Um, Joyce was a doctor who never finished his medical studies. He wrote books instead, happily for us. So to return to Ulysses, when Stephen tells us that Hamlet is the story of Shakespeare's father-son relationship. He's echoing his relationship with his own father, fathers, Mr. Dedalus and Bloom, his surrogate father. And this story within a story is, please bear with me, itself a parody of Homer's original story of Ulysses and Telemachus, from which, of course, Joyce takes the title of his work. In other words, we're dealing here with stories within stories within stories. Narrative as catharsis but not narrative catharsis understood as closure or completion, as a cure. No, there is no cure for wounds. Rather, narrative is impossible story, storytelling which forever fails to cure trauma, but never fails to try to heal it. And in this very effort itself, there is pleasure, as Aristotle says, the pleasurable purgation or distillation of pity and fear. Pity as a pathological passion, capable of destroying the citizen, being transfigured by drama, says Aristotle, into empathy, compassion. Fear as another pathological passion, capable of corrupting citizens, the citizens of Athens, is transformed by drama, by mimesis mythos. Mythos is a plot, implotted imitation of an action transformation of fear as pathological into fear as serenity. A good uh, equivalent perhaps can be found in Yeats's term, lazuli, gaiety transfiguring all that dread. It's that sense of, for, for uh, Yeats in that moment, of, of the Buddhist sage looking at the world and seeing it by. It's fear in that sense. Uh, what Stephen Dedalus in the portrait called knowledge of the hidden cause. You become aware. It's a wisdom, um, a serenity. So it's this back and forth. It's a fourth da. Catharsis as pity and fear is da, identification with the suffering person. Again, I quote Dedalus. And thought, the distance, the necessary distance. It comes under the name fear. Okay, now let's go back to the beginning. Homer's Ulysses. It's a standard motif of Greek myth that sons act like fathers before them, like father, like son, and so on infinitum, until someone says, stop. That someone is the true storyteller who transposes the regressive repetition of trauma in life into a cathartic repetition in narrative. So that repetition backwards, blocked, compulsive acting out and repetition, becomes a repeating forwards. It gives a future to the past, rather than locking the past in the past. Think of the great cyclical myths, Greek myths. Zeus castrating Saturn, castrating Uranus. Orestes reiterating the curse of the house of Atreus. Or, perhaps most famously, Oedipus repeating the deeds of his father, Laios. Recall, 
Laius raped the son of his host, Pelops, thereby committing the equivalent of incest and the betrayal of hospitality, the worst crime for the Greeks. His double transgression replicates the curse, or Ate, of his own father, Lapticus, and is repeated by Oedipus in the next generation. So the continuing narrative lineage comes under the heading of the House of Labdicus and involves a recurring acting out of unspoken traumata, i.e. wounds. In this case, over three generations, not like Tom Murphy's famine, seven generations. But actually, when you go deep into the Greek myths, it's more than three. It's four, five, six, seven, eight, etc. Now, Levi Strauss, the, the Belgian anthropologist and structuralist, has remarked how the three names of patrilinear descent in the story, Labdicus means lame, Laios means left-sided, hobbled, Oedipus swollen-footed, all refer to wounds which cause difficulties in walking. And this fact, he suggests, which is symptomatic of a transfer of trauma over three generations, and four, if one includes Antigone and wishes to open the discussion to fathers and daughters, and by extension to contemporary feminist readings which is a very good idea, but work for another day. So what we have here is a symptom of a transfer of trauma over generations. The only solution to this curse of cyclical repetition of the wounding is the conversion of the untold wound into some form of telling. In this case, the symbolic plotment of Oedipus's tragic narrative. Only this, according to Levi-Strauss, following on from Aristotle's poetics, can bring some sort of catharsis which suspends through the purging of pity and fear the compulsive acting out of mute trauma. The basic thesis in sum is that myths are machines for the purging of wounds, strategies for resolving at a symbolic level what remains irresolvable at the level of lived empirical experience. Now human existence is cursed by a tragic because impossible desire to escape the trauma of our autochthonous origins. I'm still with Levi-Strauss. Namely, the desire to buck our finitude, to deny death. In the Oedipus cycle, this tragic curse is epitomized by the patrilinear names for wounds that bind us to the earth, Labdicus, Laos, Oedipus, and the poetic role of mythos mimesis that comprises tragic drama, as Aristotle says, is to narrate our heroic desires to transcend our terrestrial nature. So you have Cadmus killing the dragon, Oedipus defeating the Sphinx, and so on. It's what Levi-Strauss calls mythemes. These, these scenes repeat themselves throughout the cycle. But our desires are ultimately impossible. Tragedies are impossible stories in that respect. Because we're scarred by contrary and irreconcilable fidelities to the earth, from which we hail and arrive, and to sky, to which we aspire, to imminence, and transcendence, divinity and infinity, matter, spirit, nature, culture. For Levi-Strauss, great mythic narratives are therefore attempts to procure cathartic relief by balancing these binary opposites in symbolic constellations. In a word, what is impossible in reality becomes possible in fiction. So how I, might we relate this reading to the father-son story of Ulysses and Telemachus? Let me say a quick word about Homer's version and then proceed to Joyce's. Ulysses is condemned to act out the wound of his own failure, his own existential finitude again and again in the Odyssey. He's absented himself from the wounds of his birth and upbringing, his autochthonous origins in Ithaca, sailing off to heroic glory in Troy. But his attempts to become an immortal warrior are constantly countered by reminders of his mortality the brutal carnage of Troy, and subsequent calamities. We could give a long list. The breaking of the lure of Calypso is also central to this increasing disillusionment. Originally leaving Ithaca as an aspirant hero, Ulysses returns as a beggar, a lowly outcast only recognized by the smell of his flesh by his dog Argos, and the scar on his thigh by his nurse Eurytlia. It is significant that Eurytlia only touches her master's scar after a detailed narrative about how Ulysses received the original wound in a childhood hunting incident with his grandfather Autolycus. Yet another example of transgenerational trauma. Note that this narrative working through, leading up to the final healing touch of, the, of, of Odysseus by the nursemaid, takes all of 77 lines. Point being that if there is a healing, there's no cure, 
for wounds. But if there's a healing of scars, first they have to be exposed. Nobody has seen Odysseus's scar. They have to be exposed and touched. There has to be something touching about the healing, sensory and sensible, carnal, embodied, and something narrative, linguistic. In that sense, it's an ambidextrous healing. We hear the story of, of Odysseus, which we have not learned up until this point, including the origin, not only of his wound, but of his name. Odysseus means the bearer of suffering, the bearer of pain. That's been hidden from us, the reader, and from Odysseus himself. So the revelation that comes, the partial revelation, is through this double-handed act of uh, touching the scar and also narrating the wound. It's interesting, it's just a note, but that Homer plays with the roots of the word Argos, uh, the dog, it's called Argos, but Telemachus is, expects his father to come back as this great triumphal, you know, quasi-divine hero. And, and the word uses uh, is Argentine, hence our word um, in Latin, Argentum, Argent in French, silver, that which shines. He's expecting a glorious body and spirit to return, but what actually turns up is this stranger, this, this mendicant, this wounded beggar. Telemachus, expecting the triumphant victor to return, victor, a triumphant victor to return, does not at first recognize his own father. He's so fixated on his great expectations of the father that he does not see the scar on his body. He's blinded by illusory emagos, projections. Delusions abound. When he finally acknowledges that the mortified stranger before him is in fact his real father, they sit down together and eat. Sharing simple food of the earth, squatting in a swineherd's den, is how they finally come together as host and guest. Hospitality is antidote to the hostile curse of fate. Of course, the same word, xenos, can mean, as in all Indo-European languages, uh, an enemy or guest. As hostess in Latin originally meant, meant friend, uh, guest at the table, and then became, became enemy. And in fact, for a very long time, uh, had both sense, guest, guest in, in the Germanic languages likewise. So there's this movement, impossible movement, from hostility to hospitality. And of course, Joyce in Ulysses is going to play on this because he takes the name of the swineherd in the humblest of dwellings, therefore, a Maus, and plays with the inn of a Maus in the Christian story, where Christ breaks bread with the two disciples and is recognized again in touch, in taste. Um, not in uh, some glorious revelation on the road to Emmaus, even though he explicates the scriptures, nobody recognizes him. Joyce plays on this. And then, of course, it becomes the cabman shelter where Bloom and Stephen come together in a moment of at least temporary hospitality. All right, the word Homer uses for scar in this pivotal scene, book 19 of the Odyssey, is ulin. This is a term often associated in Greek literature with trauma, as for example in Plato's dialogue Gorgias, ulas entosomati, hypotraumaton, where ulin means both trace and scar. While the wound trauma is timeless, the scar appears in time. It's a carnal trace which can change and alter over time, though it never disappears. Scars are written on the body. They're forms of proto-writing. A narrative catharsis is a process of working through such carnal traces. Put simply, while the wounds remain timeless and unrepresentable, scars are the marks left on the flesh to be seen, touched, told, and read. Scars are engraved wounds that may or may not be healed. I shall return to this distinction below. And if we have time, I'd be interested in also mentioning and, and addressing the work that's being done on self-cutting, for example, um, and indeed piercing and tattooing as rites of passage where adolescents in confusion need to write on their bodies. Some very interesting work by uh, Pitzer, a psychoanalyst in California, who's worked a lot with, with uh, young adolescents who, who've been abused, and how they write on their bodies by cutting their bodies, usually their arms. And uh, he encourages them to see it as a form of hieroglyphics, and eventually to move from, from, from writing on themselves to writing on paper. And it's quite extraordinary, the transposition from self-writing your own body to, to writing on paper 
and, and also eventually accompanying that by speaking, the so-called talking cure. So it's narrative and touching. And all too often since Freud, uh, talking cure has become much too disembodied, arguably. In any case, how in the light of all this does Homer's epic compare with Joyce's parody of the same epic? Quite apart from the fact that we have leaped 3,000 years, the father-son idea repeats itself, but the repetition is forward, not backward. That's what writing can do, give a future to the past. Joyce's narrative invites a release from the haunting cycle of trauma. The story of Stephen and Bloom recounts their respective efforts to escape the loss of absent parents, Stephen's mother and father, dead, dead mother, absent father. Remember, half his, two of his sisters at least are, are famished in the course of the book. They're, they're hungry, and uh, pathologically hungry, and a departed son, in, in the case of Bloom's prematurely departed son, Rudy. And Bloom, of course, carries ghosts around too. He's got his potato, which is a memento of his mother, the talisman of the famine, but also of his mother in exile. And of course, he carries the memory of his father, who was traumatized, who committed suicide. They both, traumatized father, traumatized son, seek a new bond of spiritual paternity filiality, but they cannot find it as long as they remain captive to their illusions of what this should be. Stephen's fantasy of a perfect fusion and Bloom's obsession with his lost son, Rudy. Only when they accept their condition of wounded finite beings, Stephen breaking with the literary elite of Dublin, uh, Gogarty and, and co in the National Library scene, and Bloom returning home to Molly with, as Joyce tells us, less envy than equanimity, less jealousy than abnegation, only then can arise a love beyond illusion, or the possibility of it. Surrogate father and surrogate son exchange stories of failure and mourn lost illusions in the famous Ithaca exchange. Such love beyond loss is only a hint, of course, a glint in Molly's maternal eye, but enough of a narrative catharsis, perhaps, to give the reader hope in another day, in beginning again. Child man weary, man child in the womb, the phrase Joyce uses for Bloom curling up at, in the bed at Molly's feet. And of course, as Joyce says in a letter to <clears throat> Valérie Larbeau, Ithaca est stérile, Penelope le dernier cri. Ithaca, where father and son meet, is sterile, and he calls it the dry rocks of mathematical catechism. They, they don't get it because they need Molly. There has to be the third. The mother of memory has to be retrieved. Um, and so Penelope, Molly, has the last word. Yes, I will, yes, I will, yes, which is in the future. I will. It's opened up to the future. So, to return one last time to Hamlet, we might ask this. Why does Stephen Dedalus choose this particular story to work out his theory of the father-son idea? Let's take a closer look. I'm going to move quickly so we have more time for discussion. The ghost of King Hamlet asks his son, as I mentioned earlier, to remember something that can't be remembered. So, as already said, the play begins with a tale that cannot be told, a testimony that cannot be transmitted, thereby breaking with the age-old sacred tradition of deathbed blessings passed from fathers to sons. This breakage is an example of what Dari Laub calls the collapse of witnessing. Hamlet, we saw, knows his father's condemned to flames for a secret sin committed in his youth, but his father's forbidden by this very same sin to say what this is, namely, he's forbidden from telling his story. So Hamlet inherits a double injunction from his father, remember, don't remember, and also from his father vis-a-vis -vis his behavior towards his mother, intervene to stop your mother's incest with Claudius, but don't do anything. Let not thy soul contrive against thy mother aught. No wonder the poor Dane is confused. Thus here, as in many ancient narratives of trauma, blind acts of murder and incest are encrypted rather than confessed. Whence the inheritance of the wound is a mark in one's flesh, what Hamlet famously calls the mole of nature, which one inherits with one's birth. Hamlet spends the entire play trying to catch the conscience of the king, deploying the antique disposition of mask and subterfuge, pun and quip, play and wit, so that he might, in his word, by indirection find direction out. But without, but working through, but working through, with the play of language and acting, takes time patience, five full acts. 
Truth only ultimately reveals itself when Hamlet succeeds in abandoning his illusions about a perfect father. Look here upon this picture and on this, as he says to his mother, holding up the picture of Claudius and saying, look at the satyr and then his father, look at Hyperion, the glorious king. Only when he abandons these illusions about his own perfect father and accepts that he, no less than his father before him, he, Hamlet, the prince, no less than his father before him, is a failed, forked, mortal, finite thing. Henceforth, the readiness is all. Now, this surrender of idealized imagos of the father in this instance reaches its climax in the famous graveyard scene when Hamlet comes to realize that the father who loved him as a child and bore him daily on his shoulders was not as he'd always imagined his natural father, King Hamlet, but the long-buried court jester, poor Yorick. Only then is Hamlet the son ready to act according to something beyond himself, what he calls the divinity that shapes his ends, acknowledging his own mortal condition. Then the readiness is all. And here, as in King Lear, wisdom comes from the lowliest of creatures, the fool, Yorick, and the gravediggers who report the story to him, as is Euryclea, the nurse, the most humble of creatures, and the swineherd, Emmaus, report the truth of uh, recognition when Odysseus returns. Hamlet the son, to return to the graveyard, Hamlet the son dies, after the graveyard therefore, in the duel, the play hints, poisoned by the same sword that Hamlet the father used to poison King Fortinbras on the day Hamlet was born. We're told by the gravediggers that the day Hamlet was born was the day that King Hamlet was not around for the birth. No way. He was off fighting who? King Fortinbras, who dies. And we know there are lots of poison swords around because it's the same sword that is used in the duel. To follow this hint of the grave scene, it was this secret poisoning which led to the further cycles of killings of kings by kings, Fortinbras, Hamlet, Claudius, and sons by sons, Hamlet, Laertes, and almost Fortinbras, the son. Inhumations and exhumations, cryptings and decryptings, secrets of the grave whispered through the mouths of fools and gravediggers. Now this fatal cycle of repetition only comes to an end when Hamlet himself becomes a sacrificial symptom of cyclical acting out and exposes the wound in his own body where the sword has entered. Note that the fatal wounds of King Hamlet's body, of King Hamlet's body, were never seen or touched by his son as scars, for the poisoned king was, I quote, to his grave untimely sent. His prematurely decomposing body, because of poison, having to be interred without ceremony. Hamlet never saw the corpse of his father, just as Shakespeare himself, as Stephen reminds us, never saw the corpse of his son, Hamlet. The wounds were never witnessed as scars in both cases. Once again, we find a collapse of witnessing, which makes for traumatic delay, Nachtreglichkeit, as Freud would put. Traumas, therefore, are revisited as ghosts, coming back again and again after the event, revenant, as the French says, goes is revenant, what comes back après coup, after the event. This phenomenon of delay is extremely relevant, I think, for an understanding of our own contemporary culture's fear around death and dying. In former times, mourners were encouraged to have direct and sustained funerary witness of dead bodies before burial. Think of the Irish wake, for example. And this contemporary culture of death denial is manifest today where wakes no longer exist in, in really in our culture, most other cultures. This death denial culture is manifest in all kinds of symptomatic avoidance behavior faced with the wounds of disabled and otherwise scarred persons. It's not just the dead, it's also the wounded, the weak, the scarred, the ugly. To take just one example, might not a mass social media phenomenon like Facebook, where we prepare a face to meet the faces that we meet, in a virtual climate of mandatory cheer, might this not also prove to be deep down a book of ghosts? Not that I'm against Facebook, but it's, it's to bring it into the 21st century. So let me sum up. Because the son did not witness the father going down into his grave, this absence was engraved in his flesh. The loss, the lack, the gap of the empty grave, the missingness, all this was encrypted as a suppressed rite of memory, waiting five full acts of procrastination to be retrieved. This is perhaps the reason why T.S. Eliot described Hamlet as an artistic failure. It's also the most written about drama in Western culture. And it's also the reason perhaps why Andre Green 
the French psychoanalyst describes Hamlet as the greatest literary performance of unconscious trauma and recovery, to which psychoanalysts have been endlessly drawn like kittens to a ball of wool. It reminds me of the fourth da, the kid playing with the wool. There have been over 150 works of psychoanalysis written on Hamlet, uh, and you can multiply that by 100 when it comes to literary criticism. In short, fathers and sons, sons and fathers, Eventually, it's Hamlet's own sacrificial surrender, which enables the play's other fatherless son, Prince Fortinbras, to live on, to survive the, fa the fatal curse, which ghosted the whole revenge cycle for generations. And of course, Hamlet was, was originally a revenge story. It, it's Shakespeare who turned it into a tragedy. The story that could not be told, the impossible story, is finally told, though it took five acts and is an appalling failure, dramatically, according to T.S. Eliot. And the closing words of the fifth act are delivered by Fortinbras himself, finally set free by Hamlet's sacrifice to recover the cryptid memory of his father. What does he say? He says, I have certain rights of memory to this kingdom, which now to claim advantage doth invite me. Memory and story cross in mourning. And if there's catharsis for us, the audience, it is indeed a purging of pity and fear. So let me conclude with a number of remarks, and I will move rapidly to this conclusion. A lot more could be said about narrative catharsis, but I don't have time to do it here. If I had, I would have talked about how Joyce rewrites Aristotle's notion of catharsis in Portrait of an Artist. Um, how for Aristotle, catharsis was, is what happens not to the authors of, of drama, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and so on, Euripides, but the audience. It's catharsis, something experienced by the audience. Whereas in the case of, of Joyce, Homer, Shakespeare, uh, I'm suggesting it's not just the audience, it's also, uh, you know, physician heal that, it's also the author. So it can go in, in both directions. Myself unto myself to give this name catharsis purgative, I quote Joyce, bringing to tavern and to brothel the name of witty Aristotle. So he knew he was reworking and rewriting writing Aristotle's notion of catharsis. Then there is the question, again, which I will not have time to go into, of the respective therapeutic roles of imagination, cognition, and emotion, written about by Paul Ricoeur and others. There's the question of the limits of catharsis. Uh, what can be said in terms of traumas, let's say Holocaust traumas, and what needs to be left unsaid? And there are many, Judith Herman, in the case of of rape traumas, her work, uh, Trauma and Recovery, has had a huge impact in North America. Um, and then people like Claude Landsman and Beryl Lang in relation to the Holocaust, who simply say narratives are out of order. You know, after Auschwitz, Adorno's right. You cannot write poetry, you cannot write drama, you cannot write fiction, you cannot write philosophy. And yet, as Levinas, the Jewish philosopher, says, if you remain silent about Auschwitz, the Nazis have won, because that's what they wanted. That's what Himmler committed uh, the SS2 in the Swansea Convention. Silence. Nothing must remain of this. Get rid of all the traces. It's a paradox. I would like to repeat in closing that we need to think about the genuinely cathartic role of trauma stories as requiring open narratives that never end, rather than closed narratives that presume to wish away wounds rather than working through scars. Trauma narratives are by their very nature truncated, gapped, fractured, inconclusive. They may be great stories, but they can never offer terminal solutions. And sometimes the dangers of commemorations, national commemorations, centenary commemorations, is that they become such a capital C commemoration that it becomes blocked. The gaps, the, 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 the scars are, are not visible. It becomes a triumphal sort of recapitulation of a former event. So that's always the challenge of any commemoration, of any memory. Uh, at a national level, collective level. There are no total cures. Writings can only work through traumas as traces, revisit them as hauntings. They can never fully retrieve such experiences or tell the full story. In the transposition from inexpressible wound to written scar, there's something lost in translation, always. Why? Because the wound is precisely that which could never be properly registered or recorded in the first place. It's what Ivor Brown famously called inexperienced experience. If you could experience it, you wouldn't be traumatized. You could process it. 
but it's precisely because it remains as a gap, as a silence, as a wound, as an empty grave encrypted within you that the work of scarring needs to take place and the work of writing. It was because it was too much to experience that trauma repeats itself as lack. Trauma narratives are scabs over the cavities left by inexperienced experience. Recall, in conclusion, very briefly, our three stories. The trauma inherited by Hamlet, namely his father's murder by Claudius, on top of his father's sin, committed on Hamlet's birthday, is something hinted at in the play. It's never openly stated. Moreover, the fact that his father's death and burial are missed by Hamlet, who was away in Wittenberg, is a further token of inexperienced experience. And this is linked in its own murky way with Hamlet's mother's incest with Claudius. Secrets everywhere, plays within plays, cipherings and decipherings. Shakespeare's drama engraves traces of buried trauma, which Hamlet resolves to exhume as in the gravedigger scene, but never finally exposes. Many bodies are rotten and rotting in the state of Denmark, from its eponymous king to the disappeared Polonius. But they are all hidden away, behind walls and wainscotings, lies and disguise, screens and seams. Seams, madam, I know not seams. All we have are odors, ashes, illusions. He smells Polonius going up the stairs. Oblique ciphers left deciphered, then played with, like cotton reels, forta, or gallows wit, the gravediggers. In this sense, the play's very success is its failure. Hamlet's manic, melancholic words swarm like bees over the black hole of an empty hive, but they can never fill in the gaping wound, only, at best, conjure and confront the invisible ghosts within. The narrative catharsis comes ultimately not from the cognition of discovery. We never know exactly what happened to Hamlet's father, but rather a curiously liberated recognition of recovery. Failing to gain full knowledge of his father's unspoken crime, very laconically mentioned in Act One, Hamlet nonetheless comes to acknowledge the limits of his own finite, humble existence, his crucial lesson in the grave scene. Indeed, the fact that King Hamlet's hidden story, the real reason he's condemned to purgatory, remains buried throughout the play, only returning as a spectral intimation, itself performs Prince Hamlet's inability to discover his own story, and by extension, our own ability as audience to discover the unfathomable story of the play. Hamlet's a tragedy of trauma. It recounts the impossibility of saying the unsayable. And it's only finally, of course, when he is wounded and dying that he can say to Horatio, absent thee from Felicity a while to tell my story. And Horatio presumably told the story and it finally got to Shakespeare who carried on the story and we're carrying it on again here today and it will be acted out no doubt here by Patrick Mason and other directors, Fiech, McAneel and others in years and years to come. All right. Similar issues of unsayability surround the unspoken traumas of Stephen and Odysseus. There are signs here too, but they are equally cryptid. Stephen's overdetermined guilt, Odysseus's occluded scar. And we as readers may in turn hypothesize about the nature of the various authors' own engraved wounds. For instance, what Homeric trauma, personal or collective, lies behind the long-forgotten story of Odysseus's inf infantile wound? And why is it also that, you know, if Odysseus is the first great work of Greek epic, following a war, uh, the Persians, the first drama ever written, is following the Persian, the Greek-Persian war. Why is it that plays emerge in the gaps left by war traumas. Moving on. How deep was Shakespeare's shame at missing his own son's funeral, Hamlet, or currying favor with an imperial queen, Elizabeth, abandoning his father's forbidden Catholicism? And to give Joyce the last word, what traumas, little or big, may have been reactivated by his incidental mugging in a Roman night street, recalling his mugging outside the Abbey Theatre? Guilt at abandoning his mother and family. Of course, the mother returns again and again as a ghost in Ulysses. The painful break with his city and culture. Or perhaps, father back still, the untold historical rupture inherited from the great Irish famine with its extinctions, evictions, and exiles. And I'll just end with a note on this. I would like to go on longer because here we are in Dublin and the famine is our wound. Um, but I'll confine myself to a paragraph. This last transgenerational wound is rarely acknowledged by Joycians, except for 
most recently, great scholars like Luke Gibbons, um, who has done fascinating work, and Maud Elman on these hidden traces, these almost invisible scars uh, regarding the famine in, in Ulysses. But for all its neglect since the publication of Ulysses in 1922, almost 100 years of neglect, it is, I suspect, a key aspect of Joyce's native unconscious. Joyce himself was born in, 19, sorry, in 1882, less than 30 years after the Great Hunger ended, a catastrophe that split Ireland into pre- and post-famine history, witnessing a million dead, uh, another two million banished or in exile, and almost a third of the population uh, between 47 and 1852. Loss, loss, loss. Banishment of the heart, banishment of the home. Joyce's father and grandfather lived through this unspeakable horror, though like most witnesses who survived at home or abroad, the pain of undrochsheil, or bad times, as it was elliptically known in Irish, went largely unwritten at the time. So if Stephen vows at the end of a portrait to forge in the smithy of his soul the uncreated conscience of his race, is it not logical, if not necessary indeed, that this massive gash in the national psyche would return in his next novel, Ulysses, as an irrepressible haunting, a stammering tale demanding to be heard? This is, I submit, what happens. The references are oblique, but they are per pervasive. If I had time, I would cite here in detail the work of, of commentators like Luke Gibbons on this. But they are pervasive, from Stephen's dead mother's phantasmal returns to Bloom's frequent allusions to hunger, soup kitchens, and potatoes. He even carries, as I mentioned earlier, a potato in his pocket as a talisman. You don't know whose thoughts you're chewing on, muses Bloom. Famished ghosts, ah, I'm hungry. Or as the Daughters of Erin, also called the Daughters of Memories, sing in the Cirque episode, quote, potato, preservative against plague and pestilence, pray for us. The illusions are multiple, if characteristically muted. Much hermeneutic digging is required. Here, as in Hamlet's graveyard, are Odysseus's wounded childhood. Throughout, wounded authors call for readers, traces for interpretations, hints for guesses, ciphers for thoughts. To sum up, Joyce's narrative of his native psyche shows that past wounds are never completely past, no matter how much one prays to the potato. The psychic palimpsest of personal and historical abandonment finds expression in the ineradicable wounds of what Stephen calls banishment from the heart, banishment from the home. Joyce identified similar experiences of sundering, what he calls sundering, breaking, separating, in both Shakespeare and Homer, whose traumatized heroes are also indelible scars of exile and injury. They carry these indelible scars of exile and injury. Like his literary predecessors before him, Joyce grafted stories onto histories, forgotten, repressed, occulted, or stolen histories. His narratives were secreted from those nightmares of history which by Joyce's own admission made his writing the last word in stolen telling. Ulysses is, I wager, a tireless literary effort to awaken cathartically from such historic nightmares by, resort, by restoring forfeited stories and bringing ghosts back to life. It is, in short, a work of mourning and recovery, a writing which translates wounds into scars, flesh into fiction, a working through of trauma. Thank you.